So we are going to be in Numbers chapter 13. This is a fun passage in Numbers. Not that all the passages in Numbers aren't fun, but as far as, you know, the fun passages in Numbers go, this is one of them. You, you may know this, you may not. I was, this was news to me. During the Cold War, the CIA's most highly trained spies weren't even human beings. Did you know that? I was, I was very surprised by this. According to an article by the Smithsonian, this is a quote, the U.S. government deployed non-human operatives, ravens, pigeons, even cats, to spy on our adversaries. Animals would be deployed to carry and place electronic transmitters disguised as pieces of slate or rock and carry out other intelligence missions uh, in the Soviet Union. The U.S. government contracted the same trainers who taught theme park and county fair and television animals to do what they call whimsically human activities. So the trainers that would train animals to do things in the, in the 50s and 60s like ride bikes, play drums, play baseball... Uh, behind the scenes were the same trainers from Hot Springs, Arkansas. They were teaching, quote, ravens to deposit and retrieve objects, pigeons to warn of enemy ambushes, and even cats to eavesdrop on human conversations. So you cat owners, next time your cat kind of waltzes in, you don't know, they could be, that could be an NSA cat. You think they're spying on your email, but they're sending cats to your house, I bet. Here's an interesting quote. We never found an animal we could not train, never, said Bob Bailey, who in his career has done everything from teaching dolphins to detect submarines to inventing what is called the bird brain, an apparatus that enabled a person to play tic-tac-toe against a chicken. Some of you have played, well, our, our friends who used to live in Riverdale probably have played some bird brain, I'm guessing, right? Yeah? There's an interesting bit of espionage in Numbers chapter 13. The Israelites had journeyed from Egypt through the wilderness, picking up from the story we watched there on the video, and they were poised on the edge of the promised land, that land that the Lord had been talking to them about ever since he sent Moses to deliver them. And here God allowed them to send in a party of spies to get a look at where he would be taking them. Now, before we move on, uh, two quick qualifiers. Number one, we are not Israel. Theologically speaking, it's very important that we remember that. When we start to put our, ourselves in the place of Israel, um, that's when we end up making some bad doctrinal conclusions. Um, but it's also, remember, number two, that Canaan is not a picture or a type of heaven. You know, it's called the promised land. It was the promised land for Israel. Our ultimate promised land is heaven. But Canaan is not a picture or a type in the Bible of heaven because there are no giants to slay in eternity. And I'm grateful for that. But comparing this story to our own lives, we're reminded that we are sent as soldiers behind enemy lines for our king. That's what you have been commissioned to do as a Christian tonight. And as we go through life, there's a lot God wants to show us and much he has for us to accomplish. And so devotionally speaking, we can find some insights from this text and this expedition that these 12 guys went on. And so let's start in and see what we see. It says in verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man, every one a leader among them. 
When the CIA or the KGB or whoever does espionage, it's to figure out strategies and to learn previously unknown information. I mean, they're going in because they need to know things that they don't know already. Uh, that's not why the Lord sent these guys in. Uh, God had already been there. He had already been to Canaan and knew what was up. He, he knew exactly what they would face there in that land and what they could look forward to. He, he knew every hill. He knew every valley. He knew every mountain. He knew every vineyard. He knew every city. He knew all about it. We learn in Deuteronomy that the people, it was the people who were nervous about what lay ahead. And they asked if a search party could go in first. Because of their anxiety, they said, man, Moses, can't we send some people in to spy out the land? And so the Lord said, graciously, he condescended to that timidity and to that anxiety, and he allowed this preliminary expedition. But notice how the Lord spoke to them about it. He spoke from a position of victory. He said, I want you to go see what I'm giving to you. Not what's, you know, I want you to go figure out, you know, what, I want you to see what I'm giving to you. It was a foregone conclusion in the Lord's mind that he would give them the land and empower them to conquer it. It was their inheritance. And, and for the Lord, there was no question. He says, yeah, this is yours and I'm giving it to you. So go take a look. We can have confidence that there is power for us when we walk the road of faith. You know, even when the terrain is rough or threatening, uh, we have empowering and equipping from a God who has been before us and prepared the way. Um, The Lord has prepared a way for us, and he goes with us. He goes before us to lead us. He goes, he's behind us to hedge us. The Lord is with us, and there is empowering and equipping, and we can walk confidently as we walk with the Lord. Now, notice, too, Relatively speaking, this was a sizable team of spies. Now, I've never been to the farm in Langley where they train spies in the CIA. I've never been trained in covert operations. But I'm guessing that one of the first rules is that you probably don't want to travel in a big pack as spies. You know, they were um, Hebrew people. They spoke different. They looked different. And they were traveling in a dozen throughout this land, through cities, over hills and things like that. I mean, as far as covert goes, if you're asking me how to walk into uh, enemy territory covertly, you would think, well, we don't want to go as a group. We're going to get spotted. Um, But that's exactly how the Lord sent them in. You know, just about everybody... Well, it highlights the fact that they did not have to be afraid. The Lord said, yeah, go spy out the land. How about you go as a big group? I'm going to send 12 of you guys in there to, you know, tromp through this land because you don't have to be afraid. I am with you. And it shows us also, um, devotionally speaking, that there is a lot of slots to fill when we're doing the Lord's work. The Lord's work is not just for one or two people. There's always opportunity and, and, and there's, always, uh, there's always a slot to fill when we're building for the Lord, when we're following the Lord. The work of the body, as we've been seeing in our studies through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 about the gifts of the Spirit, we see that the work of the body is meant to be done with others, that we're joined together, each fulfilling some role and some purpose, supporting one another, helping one another, serving one another. And so um, we see a picture of that in the size of this group. Verse 3, So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the children of Israel. They were going from the wilderness to the promise. You'd think anticipation would be at an all-time high, but 
Unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Just about everybody there in the encampment was nervous about what dangers were ahead. And I can understand that. I mean, these people had been through a lot. You know, as a people, they had been slaves for 400 years. The Lord had brought them out of Egypt, but um, they hadn't had, you know, formal organization or, or, uh, or, or formal training in anything other than, you know, brick making and building cities for the pharaohs. And they were nervous as they went through the wilderness. You see, they were always really on edge about where they're going to get their next meal, where they're going to get water, what they're going to do here, what they're going to do there. And the Lord was always with them. He was gracious. He showed his power. Um, But I, I can understand that they were nervous about the dangers which lay ahead. But what's even more amazing than that is that later on, the next generation of these people, of them, there would be two and a half of these tribes. They would come to Moses and they would say from the wilderness, you know what? We're just happy just to stay on this side of the Jordan. We don't even need to see what's over there. We're not even interested in what's in Canaan. We'll just hang out here. We will settle for a plot in the wilderness that's totally fine with us. And it caused some problems. You know, in the Christian life, there's always a danger of disregarding what the Lord has shown us and settling. There's lots of different ways we can settle. But for example, here are a couple of ways. When we don't stay stirred up for the Lord and for ministry, well, then our zeal and our desire to serve God is going to settle and we become apathetic. The Bible calls it being lukewarm and it's a terrible state for a believer to be in. Or there's the danger of settling the way a couple of these tribes would eventually, settling for less. The Lord clearly said, here's what I have planned for you. Here's what I desire for you. Here's what I've laid ahead of you. And they said, we don't, we don't even need to see any of that. We've got enough of your plan. We've come a lot, uh, as far as we really want to go, and we're happy to settle for a plot in the wilderness. Um, they decided to settle for something easier and more comfortable, something that at the moment seemed just as good, but what would in fact eventually draw them away from their community, away from the Lord, and into sin and captivity. And so settling is never a good thing in the Christian life, but it happens when we uh, give in to anxiety or when we give in to a, a, a desire for comfort or when we simply allow ourselves to not be about the Lord's business. And so we should take care to stay stirred up, stay pressing on toward the goal that Christ has set before us, believing that his way is better and choosing to uh, lay our anxiety at the feet of Jesus and say, okay, Lord, I'm nervous about what lies ahead, but I will trust you. You know, I I will trust that you are with me and that you um, have the power to lead me on. Now, in verses 4 through 15, they name each of these guys and what tribes they were uh, from. And without disrespecting those guys, we're just going to skip that. So drop down to verse 16. These are the names of the men who Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. In the midst of this little story, we see that Hosea picked up a new name. It's the one we know him by, is Joshua. As we live the Christian life, or when you become a Christian, the Lord starts to redefine who you are, everything about you. That's something that is said explicitly in the Word, and it's something that's demonstrated to us a number of times. You know, the Lord likes to redefine people and rename them. We see it here, obviously. Jacob, the Lord came to him and he says, you're not Jacob anymore, you're Israel now. Abraham, same thing. He says, you're not Abram anymore, you're Abraham. I'm renaming you, I'm redefining you. 
Uh, we read in Mark chapter 3 that Jesus took Simon. He said, you want, you're going to be my disciple? I can't wait. Your name's Peter now. And, uh, and he redefined Peter. And Peter's one of the great examples of how the Lord redefines a life according to his will. Your life as a Christian is being redefined as God conforms you into the image of Jesus Christ. And when you're finally finished, I mean, we're all works in progress, every last one of us, and when you're finally finished, you too will get a new name that the Lord gives you. This is Revelation 2, verse 17. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. That's cool. I mean, and that, that's a really fun thing. It's something I forget about, one of those promises that gets kind of lost uh, among the other thoughts of heaven about streets of gold and the tree of life and all of that. But that is a really exciting thing, that the work that we see demonstrated uh, in Abraham, in, in, uh, in Jacob, in Joshua, in Peter, the Lord is doing that work in your life right now as he seeks to redefine you and conform you. And so the encouragement to us is to allow God to redefine us. Again, going back to Peter, Peter was one of those guys who from time to time, as you track with him in the Gospels, sometimes he would be uh, more malleable in, in the hands of the Lord, more open to the Lord redefining his thoughts and his activities and his behavior and all of that. And other times he was a little bit less uh, inclined to to be redefined by God, um, but let's be encouraged to allow God to redefine us. We don't want our desires or our liberties or our past to define who we are. We want to, uh, to allow God to define who we are and who we're going to be. Verse 17 says, then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, go up this way into the south, go up to the mountains, see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not, be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. This was going to be quite a trip. Um, this was a walking tour, but I mean, but this was a, a, a serious journey. Some parts were going to be tougher, tougher than others. They were going to encounter mountains. They were going to encounter valleys. They were going to encounter all the things that you see present in the Holy Land today. <clears throat> They'd go through forests and fields and camps and cities. There was a lot to see and a lot to learn, a lot of ground to cover. None of us really want to go through a valley in life, spiritually speaking or emotionally speaking. We don't want to go through the valley of the shadow of death. We don't want to go through uh, difficult times of storm, but we can be sure that valleys lie ahead. That is a guarantee that we've been given as God's people from the word. The perspective to keep in mind is that though the terrain may be difficult, we are on our way home to an incredible inheritance. And so these spies, yes, they would encounter some difficult terrain, but they could keep in mind the fact that, okay, I'm heading towards an inheritance. I'm heading toward my new home. And, and that should be the perspective that we keep as well. Now, here are a couple things that we know about their spy trip. First, 
We know that what they're doing was inherently dangerous. I mean, it was espionage after all. And history seems to indicate that people don't like being spied on. Whether it's the NSA or all the way back through human history, when you get caught spying, it's typically the end of your road. And so we know that this trip was inherently dangerous on the human level. Um, and, and to us, that reminds us that we have enemies out there. You as a Christian who've been commissioned by God to go behind enemy lines in this world, to shine light, to represent Christ, to do the things that he set before you to do, you have enemies out there. And they're serious enemies. And they're looking to catch you. They're looking to stop you and hurt you and destroy you. And so because of that, we need to put on the armor God gives us, shield ourselves with faith, and focus on what we're doing. This was not a leisure trip. The trip required a lot of focus and, 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 and a, a paying attention to what they were doing. But the other thing we know about this trip is that there would be fruit for them to harvest. Other than gathering general knowledge about the layout of the land, um, that's the one thing they were tasked to do. Moses said, bring back some fruit. Harvest some fruit and bring it back. And to me, I don't know, that's very interesting. I think that I look at my own life and I realize that I'm not always as fruit-oriented as God is, uh, or as or I'm not always as um, focused on spiritual fruit as God seems to be in His Word, um, at least not the kind of fruit that He talks about. A lot of times, Christians or, or churches will call numeric success fruit. That's the fruit that they'll kind of be chasing after. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but we're told in the Bible by God about the kind of fruit that he wants to bear in our lives, the kind of fruit that he plans to harvest in you and grow in you. It's spiritual fruit. It's fruit that blesses you and blesses others and fruit that builds up the church. It's fruit that transforms a life. And cultivating those fruits that we read about in Scripture should be our goals. That should be the goal in our minds and the harvest that we're working towards more than a harvest of numeric success, either in ministry or in our, our regular lives. Does that make sense? So, the, so Moses said, hey, go in there, harvest some fruit. And to me, it was a reminder that the Lord talks a lot about spiritual fruit in his word. And my goal is to allow the Lord to bear that fruit that he talks about in my life and cultivate it and work towards the harvest so that I can be built up, people around me can be built up, the church can be built up, and the Lord can do the work that he has plainly said he wants to do. Verse 21, so they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob near the entrance of Hamath. And they went up through the south and came to Hebron. Ahiman, Shishai, Talmai, and the descendants of Anak were there. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. Well, there you go. Now you know. Uh, then they came to the valley of Eshol, and they cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes, and they carried it between two of them on a pole. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place they, uh, was called the Valley of Eshol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. The Corps of Discovery, led by Lewis and Clark, it lasted for two and a half years. And after a while, for a while they could send correspondence back home, but as they traveled further west, obviously it was harder for them to get information back. And so after a while, everybody back home, Jefferson and everybody, they just thought all those people were dead. Um, and they were really excited when they found out that they weren't dead and that the core of discovery had been uh, a success. Um, 
This spy trip may not have lasted for two and a half years, but man, this is still a long and tough trip. I don't know if any of you are Survivor fans, if you watch Survivor, uh, but each season of Survivor, it's a competition. It lasts for 39 days on some remote beach somewhere where the people are stranded there and kind of have to fend for themselves and they compete with one another. And I'll tell you this, the people who make it to like day 30 or to, to certainly to day 39, man, those people are tore up. We would say they are tore up from the floor up. And they'll show like, they'll show scenes from early in the season, like day one or day three, and the people, you know, are real plump and they look like normal human beings. And then they show them like right now and you're like, oh man, eat some food, you know? Uh, but it, it, it our Israeli spies were certainly more able-bodied than the average American TV reality contestant. That's a given. Uh, but this was a tough trip. It took stamina and effort and focus. And to us, that reminds us that the Christian life is a long haul with a lot of ground to cover. And I don't mean to bum anybody out, um, but that's, that's simply the truth. It's good ground. It's ground that we walk with Jesus as he leads us forward. He's bringing us to a land of incredible promise and glory, but it's a long haul walking the Christian life, even in a place as blessed and as protected as the United States. As Christians in the scope of human history, I mean, we have it better than any Christians perhaps in the history of Christianity. And, 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 but even for us in the United States in 2014, it is a long haul to walk the, the Christian road. And I say that only because this past week I've, on social media, I saw some pastors referencing things kind of differently, acting like, you know, hey, just it's not that big of a deal. In fact, one pastor in his sermon, he said, embracing the cross and living the Christian life isn't difficult. And I was like, whoa, like, I, I just, on one level, I understand what he was, I guess, trying to say, but I'd have to disagree. It requires dedication. It requires sacrifice. It requires self-denial. And those aren't complicated things. They're not impossible things by any means, but they can certainly be painful or demanding or, or difficult um, at times. But we do them because we know that what God has in store for us is incredible, and it is greater, and it is more abundantly than what we could gain for ourselves. Uh, he gives us the real future and a real life when we do embrace him and take up our cross. And it requires focus, it requires stamina, it requires effort to walk the road the Lord sets before us. Notice too, before we move on, that this expedition was a group effort. They traveled together, they carried together. Christians don't live in a vacuum, we don't serve in a vacuum, we don't grow in a vacuum. There's a popular idea floating around out there right now um, among prominent Christians, among local Christians, um, that I can just be an individual disciple. I have a Jesus follower. I just float free. I don't need the church. The church has failed, and I'm just out there because you don't really need that connection. And um, that's simply not true. The Bible says that we need to be knit together with other believers, otherwise we're dismembered. We're like a dismembered part of a body, um, and, and we're going to fail to support others and be supported ourselves in key ways if we are not knit together with other believers and knit together with the church. Verse 26 says, 
Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. I love that last statement. This is the fruit. And they could point at this big, huge cluster of grapes. What an amazing thing to be able to point to and say, hey, this right here is one cluster of what God has waiting for us. You know, we don't always have perfect clarity in life. Certainly when we're in the middle of a trial or a storm uh, or a difficulty, I mean, we wonder, hey, what is going on? Like, Lord, are we going to sink in this thing? Or or how are you going to work this together for good in my life? Um, So we don't always have clarity uh, in those sorts of times especially, but we do know the kind of fruit and the kind of harvest that the Lord has for us on the road we're walking. We do know where we're headed. We do know what the Lord promises. We do know what he supplies and what he gives to his people. And God is very upfront about the harvest we can look forward to both in this life and the next life. He says, you know, if you walk with me, here's the peace, here's the joy, here's the satisfaction, here's the usefulness for you, here's the wisdom, here's the fellowship, here are all of the things that come with a relationship with me. And like Jesus said, or like Paul said, we can focus on that fruit, on that inheritance, on that joy that's been set before us by the Lord, and we can press forward despite the difficulty or the danger and know that we are headed to a place where a river of life flows, and we will be rewarded for our faithfulness and our perseverance in this world. And if we have an understanding of what God has laid up for us and set aside for us, then of course we realize that the um, difficulties of the race we're running pale in comparison to what we're running toward. Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Paul said, man, run that race because the the things that we're going through right now, they're going to be gone. They're going to be a vapor that just wisps away because we know what we're headed towards. We know what God gives to us as his people. Verse 28 says, nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. The Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. This really wasn't new information. Um, The Lord had been very clear about where they were going and who lived there. He said, yeah, I'm sending you to the land of the Hittites and the Amorites and the Amalekites and the Canaanites. That's where you're going, and you're going to drive them out, and you're going to conquer that land. That land belongs to you. The Lord had been saying that to them all the way back when they were still slaves in Egypt. More importantly, he had promised and demonstrated his incredible power that would go out on their behalf. We learn later on that the Lord sent hornets into the land before they even got there to start um, driving out the people. And he sent the fear of the people. And, And he had already demonstrated right before their very eyes, like what we saw in the video, the destruction of the army of Pharaoh. Um, And not just the armies of Egypt, but the entire nation of Egypt, this great world power was decimated, laid waste by by the arm of God through the 10 plagues. 
And uh, even on top of that, they said, hey, man, the Amalekites live in the south. Okay, yeah, you guys already defeated the Amalekites. That's that famous story where Moses is up on the hill and he has his staff up. And as long as the staff was up, they just drove the Amalekites back. They had already defeated some of these enemies. They had seen God overthrow a great world power in a moment. He had parted the Red Sea and showed, hey, this is who I am, this is what I can do, and here's what I'm going to do for you in the land where all these people dwell. And then these 10 spies come back and they say, hey, man, people dwell there. What are we going to do? There's adversity there. There's, there's, con- there's conquest we're going to have to partake in. There's going to be some effort involved. We can't have that. And the problem was that 10 of the 12 spies and the multitude who listened to them allowed their desire for safety and security to be their greatest motivator of their decisions. They assumed that avoiding the Canaanites would mean they'd be safe and sound. Notice the assumption they're making. They're saying, hey, we can't go into the land because if we go in there, we won't be safe. If we stay here, we'll be totally fine. Guess what? That's what the two and a half tribes who stayed on the other side of the Jordan thought too, and they were the first to be conquered later on in the history of of these people. They weren't safe in the wilderness, but they said, well, we can't go in there because after all, we might not be as safe or as comfortable or as, you know, copacetic as we are right now. Through their choices, they were assuming that the conquest of Canaan wouldn't be worth the cost or the difficulty involved. And that's a very sad thing. So on one hand, they're pointing, they say, look at one cluster of grapes, so large This wasn't a vine of grapes, it was one cluster of grapes, and it was so large that two grown men had to carry it together. They said, yeah, but going into this land, it's not worth it. It's not worth the effort of fighting the battles with the God who's already shown that he destroys our enemies before us. What we allow to motivate us makes a big difference in our lives, spiritually and physically. If our main motivation is wealth or comfort or what, what we assume to be stability and safety, then we're not going to be making the godly decisions in life. We just aren't, uh, most of the time. We need to check our motivations. And here's the thing, this multitude and these 10 spies, they didn't want to go into the land, so where are you going to go? The, I mean, okay, so you're not going to go into Canaan where the Lord is leading you and where he is, you know, done all this work for you, so where are you going to go? At one point, they suggest, well, we could go back to Egypt. Yeah, there's no Egypt to go back to. Their government had been toppled. Their land had been destroyed. Their livestock were gone. A whole generation of sons were destroyed. And let me tell you this, the Egyptians that were left wouldn't be none too happy to have the Hebrews show back up and say, hey, we're here again. They'd be like, hey, pick up the nearest spear and let's get rid of these people. That's what Pharaoh wanted. He's like, I'm going to either kill all these people. He, we didn't want to let them go as slaves. And he said, hey, man, we're going to go out there and we're going to wipe them out or bring them back as slaves. And now he was gone. The army was gone. The government had been toppled. The land had been destroyed. And so the idea that, well, we'll go back to Egypt, that's stupid. Well, we call that stupid. And the other suggestion or the only other option was to stay in the wilderness, wandering around never growing fruit of their own, never being built up the way the Lord wanted. But you know, if we don't check our motivations on a regular basis, it's easy for us to fall into this kind of thinking ourselves. We trade God's plan for some wilderness because on some human level, it seems safer or easier or less costly. 
But it's never where we want to be. We never want to be in the wilderness in that sense. And we can't find fulfillment in the wilderness. Every time we see this sort of attitude demonstrated in God's word, what do you think when you read this? You think, no, don't say we're not going in. Go in there. Or you see Saul, the king, sitting under the tree, and he's like, I don't want to fight the Philistines, or I don't want to fight Goliath. And you think, no, get out there and do it. And you think, man, just get out there. Everything's going to be fine if you will get out there and do what the Lord has asked you to do. Because we see the truth from heaven's perspective in those texts. We understand what they're missing out on. And that's exactly what Caleb says to them in verse 30. He says, don't settle. He says, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and he said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. We are able because God is able. Whatever giant you face, you are able because God is able. And like David, the giant killer, we need to remember that we serve a living God and not let our hearts fail. Caleb had the kind of perspective the Lord wants us to have about our own lives. Here's how the people responded. You know the story, verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, the land which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants, other than the people who live there. Uh, And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight too. They thought we were small too. It's like, okay, well, were you guys like playing Parcheesi with the giants or what? How do you know what they were thinking? I thought you were spies, but whatever. A couple of things. First of all, of course, the Canaanites and the giants were stronger than them. They were these warfaring, like brutal people. The Israelites were a bunch of slaves that had just gotten released and had their freedom, but they didn't have to battle alone. Sadly, the people failed to remember what God had done, what God had commanded and what God had promised and the fact that they had already defeated some of these people, the Amalekites. And it's a good reminder to us of how key it is for us to remember what the Lord has said, what the Lord has done, what he has commanded and promised, especially when we're discouraged. Psalm 77 verse 10 says, I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. We must remember the Lord and charge forward in faith, knowing who our God is and that we are able because he is able. Joshua and Caleb tried to get them to remember that they gave another impassioned plea in chapter 14 as the story continued. This is 14 verse six. But Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying, the land we passed through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord nor fear the people of the land for they are our bread. Their protection has departed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Man, these guys walked in confidence. You know, they saw the same things that the other 10 saw, but they walked without fear because they viewed the scene through the lens of God's word. They said, okay, here's what God said. And so that's how I'm gonna look at this. Well, I care that there are giants there. They believed God. And so it didn't matter the terrain or the fortifications or any of that. 
because they said, yeah, I believe God. I remember what he said. So here's what I see based upon what God has said. The crowd didn't see things that way. They viewed their situation through their desire for ease and for their security. And as a result, they made the absolutely wrong decision. So what about us? What do we want to walk away with tonight? The foremost encouragement is that if you're a Christian, you may be sent behind enemy lines, but God is with you and he has a plan for your life and he is able to accomplish that plan. He speaks to you from a position of victory. The fruit and the inheritance that he has set before us are worth the sacrifice and the difficulty that they require in this life. It's an abundant and eternal life that can only be found in his service. Rather than be like this multitude who stayed and died in the wilderness, we want to be people who press forward and walk the road that the Lord has prepared for us. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We do that by remembering what God has said, what God has done, who God is, and following after him as he leads us, knowing that we are headed for a wonderful future, full of fruit, full of glory, greater than we could ask or imagine. Amen.